today we're going to be looking at kingdom righteousness. Kingdom righteousness. Now, this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today is very, there's a lot there, like different layers that you could pull apart here, very deep theological passage. And so we're going to spend two weeks uh, looking at this particular passage, because when we look at this passage, the question really comes up, if you think through it, is this, do the Ten Commandments really apply to me? So yesterday, we were doing flag football with the kids over at the homes, and we had just finished with the kids, and, and Jacob had, had talked to them, and this man is yelling. He's walking towards me. He's yelling. He comes across the field where we're playing. He's yelling at me, and I figured out what he was saying. He says, you're causing these kids to profane the Sabbath. You're going to have to give an account to Almighty Yahweh, and he had said that to me about 20 times, and he was I really felt badly for him. I, I said, hey, my name is Jay, and he didn't really want to communicate with me. But he, he was accusing me of profaning the Sabbath. Okay, so one of the commandments of the Ten is, you know, you need to keep the Sabbath holy. And does that apply to us? Is that something that we are supposed to do? And that really is, you may not see it in this passage, but next week you'll understand why it's a part of the passage. What authority does the Old Testament have in our lives, right? So you've got 66 books in the Bible, 39 of them are in what we call the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Does that all apply to us? Because we're under the New Covenant. We have the New Testament. Those, those passages in the Old Testament that talk about you should eat this, you shouldn't eat that, you should wear this, you shouldn't wear that, don't shave your beard that way, don't get tattoos, that, those kinds of passages. Do those apply to us today? As Christians, are we to disregard the, old, the, the writings of the Old Testament? What part do they play in our life? So as we look at this passage in Matthew chapter 5, we need to understand the context. So anytime you read the Bible... You want to understand, what is the context? Context is very, very important. Why is Jesus saying what he's saying, and who is he speaking to? So let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is speaking to Jews. He's, right, he's speaking to the Jewish people, his brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of Abraham. He's speaking to Jews who are still under the Mosaic law. Jesus is speaking to Jews who understand righteousness, in terms of the Pharisees and their traditions, right? So you had all these like super spiritual people, like the really professional, you know, servants of God that, that dressed the right way and they said the right things, they gave the right greetings, they did all the right things, they held to their traditions, you know, on the Sabbath, they observed it to a T. Those Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. And so the ordinary person like you or me, we would look at those Pharisees and think, I could never be like them. They're so righteous. Look at what they do. I could never be that holy. Jesus is going to be reorienting how we look at righteousness, especially in light of the Pharisees. Now, as we understand the context, the Mosaic Law, okay, the Ten Commandments, and then outside the Ten Commandments, you have other writings that kind of tell us about the Ten Commandments and how to live those out. Okay, they're the foundations for the Pharisees. Again, the Pharisees were a group of spiritual leaders. And, and, and the foundation was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, and God gave those books, those writings through Moses, to the Jewish people. They were given to a specific people at a specific time. Now, on the outside, so you have the Ten Commandments and the laws associated with it. Well, these Pharisees and scribes, they want to make really sure that they didn't break any of those laws. So they developed traditions in this book called the Mishnah. 
And these traditions were like a fence to keep them from getting close to breaking any of the Ten Commandments or any other laws associated with that. It's called the Mishnah. The scribes and Pharisees prided themselves not just to the letter of the Mosaic Law, and most of us think of the Ten Commandments, but even to the letter of the Mishnah. So if you look at the Moses in the, in the, in the law, there are 633 commandments, 248 positive, and 365 negative. Is that overwhelming or what, guys? Does that kind of stress you out? Hey, you want to be righteous? Here's the scroll. You know, it's that long. Do all those things. Don't do those things. And so you have the law, those 613 commandments that are in, in God's word, but then you had all the oral teachings surrounding that. These scribes and Pharisees, and this is what we're going to see today, these spiritual leaders were skilled at external, showy religion. We call, I'm going to call that religiosity later on. You heard that expression? Religiosity? While they disregarded the motives of the heart. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants your heart, guys. You know, Jesus cuts right through the phony, baloney, good times, and rock and roll. He, he knows your heart. He wants your heart. If he hasn't done already, he wants to give you a new heart so that you will have the righteousness that he wants. And he'll freely give it to you. You just got to ask him. He's not stingy, okay? So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, we read this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished. Therefore, anybody, anyone who sets aside the least of these commands and teaches others to do it accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, Whatever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who wants to be called great? I do. I'm not going to hide it. I want to be called great. You guys can like cover that up, but I want to be called great. But more importantly, I want to be in the kingdom, okay? Jesus continues, for I tell you, this is an amazing statement. This, this statement just rocked the room. Because remember, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the spiritual elites, the creme de la creme, the elites. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the teachers and the Pharisees, then you will certainly never enter the kingdom of God. Your righteousness has to be better than the spiritual elite. What kind of makes you want to just like, okay, I'm hopeless, right? When you read something like that, I could never do that. I could never be that. Well, we need to unpack this a little bit and see what Jesus means when he says this. Let's pray first and ask God to give us understanding. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ in his teachings, his life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. We thank you for salvation that comes through faith in him. Holy Spirit, please teach us now. Please teach us what you would have us to learn transform us. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who's never had their heart transformed by Jesus, I pray that you would do that now. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the first thing we see here as we look at this text is a commanding clarification. Jesus is trying to clarify 
what's going on. So the Sermon on the Mount really is kind of like the core of Jesus' teachings. Like it's the big message. Okay, and then you have things attached to it along the way. This is not Jesus' first time he's preaching, right? This wasn't like, okay, let's put Jesus up on the stage. We'll introduce him to the world. He's already been traveling around the, the country teaching and preaching in towns and healing people. They've heard him teaching. And some of this is a repeat of what he's already said. And he wants to clarify for them what he's preaching. Okay, he, and he says, he starts out by saying, he says, do not think, let me make it clear to you I'm not, what I'm saying is not abolishing the law and the prophets. I'm not doing that. So don't get confused by that. So the question is, is what are the law and the prophets? What is he talking about there? What is meant by the law and the prophets or the law of the prophets? What is, what is meant by that? All right, so we think of the law of the prophets. That's a, a way of summarizing the entire Old Testament. If you're a Jewish person, you don't like to hear Old Testament. You want to hear the Tanakh. The Old Covenant. The first five books I have listed there is the Torah. But you also have the historical books, like First and Second Samuel, First and Kings, First and Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. The poetic books, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. You have all the prophetic books, right? All the gloom and doom, right? Repent, turn. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, yada, yada, yada. So that's, he's talking about the entire... Old Testament, the entire Bible at that point, okay, which is Genesis to Malachi. Jesus, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Okay, so I may, I may shorten it to just the law, okay, at this point. And when we think about the law, it's not just do this and don't do that. I think sometimes we look at God's word, we look at the Bible, we think about the Ten Commandments, or like do this, don't do that. That's not... The reason God gave us the law was just to be a cosmic killjoy and curb our behavior, although that's, he does help control our behavior. We're talking about the law, and specifically the Ten Commandments, and then again, the other commandments come out from that. The law reflects the character of God. The law teaches us who God is, his character. It was given as a part of the Mosaic covenant that God spoke to Moses, right, the burning bush thing, and spoke to him after that as well, gave him the teachings and said, this is how you're going to lead the country, the nation of Israel. This is what's going to guide the nation of Israel. It's a particular group of people, the Hebrews, at a particular time. It was associated with a covenant to guide the nation of Israel. Friends, the Ten Commandments was never meant to save anybody. The law was never meant to save anyone. What it does do is it demonstrates how much we need Jesus. Jesus, I, I can't. I, I, I sin, I struggle, I fail, I can't do it, I need your help. And Jesus says, I've done it for you, I did it for you. Just trust in me. Believe that I, I lived a perfect life for you, I died on the cross to take away your sins, and I rose from the dead to give you the hope of eternal life, just trust in me. As the law teaches us how much we need Jesus Christ, right? So the law has this teaching. It has, also has prophecy, believe it or not. And it also has the right and wrong. Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't covet. That is a part of it, this right from wrong. And Jesus is trying to show them, and we're going to lead into the next point, that, that everything pointed towards him in the scriptures. 
Jesus was interacting with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they were concerned about the kingdom, who was going to be there. They were concerned about eternal life. And Jesus is like, you're searching the scriptures, and you just don't get it. It all points towards me. Pretty bold statement, isn't it? In John's gospel, we read this. Jesus talking to the Pharisees, those spiritual elites. He says, you study the scriptures, the law and the prophets. You study them diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. You don't understand how radical a statement that is. Genesis to Malachi, it talks about me. They were big on Moses, so he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because he wrote about me. Moses was writing about me in the law. The prophets were writing about me. So Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets, but I came, what? To fulfill them. I have come to fulfill them. Right there in the text. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what does it mean when Jesus, what does he mean when he says, I've come to fulfill the law? Well, one understanding of that is that he's, he, he perfectly lived out the demands of the law. And he did that. He perfectly, he lived a perfect life. Not once did he fail at any point. Not in his action, not in his attitude. It's amazing. That is one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that Jesus brings out the the fuller or deeper meaning of the law, right? Because as we move forward in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, you've heard it was said, you know, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery, right? So it's kind of a fuller meaning. He goes from like, you know, just the actions to what's going on inside your heart and your mind as you look out at the world trying to be salt and light. That's another way of looking at it. Both of those are are true to an extent, but I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. I think the third point, and hopefully I put a green check mark by it, in case you're confused, and I said the point, Jesus completes or, we say, fulfills in, in that the law and the prophets look forward and point towards Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all that the law and prophets are trying to tell the people of God about the Messiah that he promised in Genesis chapter 3. The Old Testament anticipates the coming Messiah in the law and in the prophets and all that he would do for his people. And the Old Testament has this sacrificial system, right? We think about the Old Testament, we think about these guys in these funny gowns, you know, and they're carrying around a knife, and these, there's like, bah, 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 they're running, they're, they're taking the life of the, the animal, this sacrificial system. And that sacrificial system existed to teach the children of Israel the seriousness of sin, and that, and that the, the wages of sin is death. There's this life-for-life life principle, and when you sin, a life has to be given up, and the animal's life was given up. And every animal that was sacrificed pointed towards the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. The Old Testament has predictions, right? We we talk about the prophecies of Christ, like in Micah, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, and and on and on. And there's different types. Like David pointed towards Christ. Jonah points towards Christ. All the Levitical priests pointed towards, towards Christ. 
And so Jesus says, I've come to fulfill. The Old Testament points towards me, and the Old Testament stands until everything is accomplished. The Old Testament stands, the law and the prophet stands until everything that it says about me comes to pass. We'll get to that in just a second. But Matthew's Gospel links us to this concept of Jesus being the fulfillment of what was written in the Law and the Prophets. We're going to see in Matthew chapter 11, as Jesus is talking about the kingdom, he says this. He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So the advent of John the Baptist was this historical marker that shows us something about what's happening in God's plan of redemption. That the Messiah was coming and all that had been prophesied, all that the law and prophets said about the Messiah was getting ready to come to pass. Jesus. Actually, let me go on. Let me give you another example of this. And this is from the writing of Paul. Right? So we see this prophecy and fulfillment, but we also see all the promises in the Old Testament point towards Christ. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are, yes, in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by, by us to the glory of God. Right? So we see prophecy, fulfillment in Christ. We see promise and fulfillment in Christ. I think nowhere is it better described for us in the prophets than Isaiah chapter 53. Right? This prophecy of the suffering servants that by his wounds we would be healed, that he would take our iniquity upon him, that the Father would pierce the Son, the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells us that Isaiah was talking about him. The prophets were pointing towards him as the fulfillment. Right After Jesus was resurrected from the dead, He's walking down the road with some people who had followed him. They didn't recognize him because God had um, made it so that they wouldn't recognize him at that point. And he's talking to them. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, Isaiah 53, and enter his glory? And then Jesus and, the, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning Himself. That all the Scriptures heretofore, Genesis to Malachi, pointed towards the coming of Christ and the work that He would do, and that He is fulfillment. He didn't come to abolish that. He came to fulfill all that is said about Him. And Jesus understood His ministry. And and the way he did it was, it was with audacity. Because he understood what Moses said about him in Deuteronomy. So God is interacting with Moses, and God says this to Moses. He says, Moses, you're a great prophet, you're a great man. I'm using you to lead the people. I'm giving you my word. There is going to be a prophet that's going to come after you, like you, greater than you. And people are going to have to give an account for their lives according to what he says. And he's talking about the coming Messiah. God says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call into account anyone who does not listen to my words 
that the prophet speaks in my name. He's talking about Jesus there. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And then in the book of Acts, Peter validates this very point. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will completely be cut off from his people. Jesus says, I am all that the law and the prophets anticipated. I am all. I am its fulfillment. My words must be obeyed. I am the revelation from God which cannot and must not be ignored. When Jesus speaks to you, he's speaking the words of God because he is God in the flesh. He speaks with authority. And he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so, as such, Jesus says, I'm not here to abolish it. No, the Old Testament stands. Genesis and Malachi, no, it stands. I'm not here to abolish it. I'm here to fulfill it. So he says, for truly I tell to you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Right, so this smallest letter is the yod in Hebrew. The least stroke of the pen would be a, a fancy word is diacritical mark, or like, you know, like a, a kind of a punctuation almost, like an apostrophe. He says, not even the smallest mark on the page is going to disappear until everything is accomplished. Now, some people talk about that as like at the end of the age. That's not what Jesus is referring to there. What did Jesus say when he was on the cross right before he breathed his last breath? It is finished. What Jesus is saying is this. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but the smallest letter or mark of the Old Testament will stand, will not, I'm sorry, let me read it again. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the smallest letter or mark of the Old Testament will not pass away until everything is accomplished or fulfilled. So as Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, his teachers are going to be radical. He's teaching us how to be salt and light. He's taking things that the people are familiar with, and he is explaining it like deeper meaning, kind of extending it a little bit. He says, but I'm not abolishing anything. I'm trying to teach you what the true meaning of the law indeed is, indeed has been. Jesus is teaching them that the law and the prophets will be fulfilled the enduring value of the law and prophets and all that it anticipated will endure until it finds its fulfillment in me. So the fulfillment occurred when? Christ crucified, resurrected. That's when the fulfillment occurred. That's the fulfillment that's in view. So he moves from this clarification to careful command keeping. Careful command keeping. Look at the commands. He mentions it twice. He says, these commands, these commands. Or what are the commands that Jesus is talking about? We have to remember the context. He says, anybody who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So what are the commands? We have to remember the context. What is the context that Jesus is speaking into? He's speaking into a context, okay, where... The Jews who are receiving Jesus' words are still under the Mosaic Covenant. And because they're still under the Mosaic Covenant, they're still bound to fulfill 
all that has been written up to this point. Jesus has fulfilled much of what the law and the prophets said about him, but not all. Right? Jesus, up to this point, he's fulfilled a lot of what's been said about him, but not everything has been fulfilled. The people he's writing to, the Jews, are still obligated to everything that's in the Mosaic law. No tattoos, don't wear blended fabric, don't eat beef and, and milk together, etc., etc., etc. And as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we see this, that the Jews receiving this word from Jesus are still under the law. Like, just a little bit further in Matthew chapter 5. Well, actually, back to, let me get Matthew chapter 5, right? So Jesus is teaching them about how to be at peace with those within the people of God. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first, and first go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. So he's saying, hey, look, if there's an issue, with, if you have an issue with your brother, and you're going to the temple to sacrifice and offer up an offering... Leave it there at the altar. Go back and make things right with your, you know, your friend or your brother and the, and the people of God, and then go offer your sacrifice. Well, we don't have an altar anymore. There is no altar. Once Christ rose from the death, that was made obsolete. There is no altar in Jerusalem right now. There is no one place of worship. And so obviously Jesus is speaking into a context it is limited by the people of God, the Jews, and the Mosaic Law. Right? In Mark's account, and I skipped past this a minute ago, right? Jesus heals this leper, and after he heals the leper, he says, don't go tell anybody, please, I'm trying to keep things on the deal right now. He says, but I want you to do this. Don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded you for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So, they were still under the Mosaic law up to this point because everything had not been fulfilled. Because Jesus Christ had not been crucified. He hadn't suffered completely as a suffering servant. He hadn't risen from the dead. And so they were still under the Mosaic law. And so Jesus says it is important to carefully obey the commands because careful obedience affects your place in the kingdom. We don't like to think about this, right? So in the kingdom... Christ is ruling. We're with him in the kingdom. Life is great. But there are going to be levels of, there's going to be this hierarchy based on how you lived in this life and based on how you fulfilled the commandments. That's what Jesus says. Look at the text. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, no, no, no. I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill. Right now, as I speak to you, at this moment, Jews, at the time when Jesus was teaching, you're still under the Mosaic law. Obey what God has given you. Because when you come into the kingdom, your obedience is going to affect your standing in the kingdom. Now for us in the church, it's a little bit different. We'll talk about that in just a minute because Jesus gives a cautious call. We go from careful command-keeping to a cautious call. And at this point, Jesus wants us to understand that genuine heart righteousness, for you and me, genuine heart righteousness affects your entrance into the kingdom. Genuine heart righteousness. 
Back to the text, Matthew chapter 5. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, what in the world are you saying? If you're listening to Jesus speak right now, in that time, in that day, and you're a Jew, and you look at the scribes and the Pharisees as like the end all of righteousness, and there's like no way you live in this gutter of spirituality looking up at the Pharisees thinking, if I could only be like them, and now Jesus, you're saying, I have to be better than them? Have you lost your marbles, Jesus? How can that possibly be? Well, Jesus, again, as I said, he saw through the scribes and the Pharisees, friends, look at me, just like he sees through you and me. Man sees the outside, but God sees what? He sees the heart. Jesus isn't fooled by religiosity. And Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 15. Right, The scribes and the Pharisees, they're just lambasting Jesus because his followers aren't washing their hands the way, they're, the way hand washing's been prescribed before they eat. Because they're eating grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, look, guys, you Pharisees, he says, you guys nullify the word of God for the sake of tradition. Just prior to this, he talked about the, a practice that the Pharisees had, right? The scriptures say, the commandments say, honor your father and mother, right? And what the Pharisees and scribes were doing They didn't want to honor their parents with all their money. So according to their tradition, they could take some of their money and say, this is Corban, this is set aside. My parents may be destitute in need, but I've got this money set aside for God's purposes. i got to take care of this money. Mom and Dad, you'll be okay. You're just one step closer to the kingdom. And Jesus says, you guys are hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You guys are phony, baloney, good times in rock and roll. I see right through you. You guys are hypocrites. And that was Jesus' favorite word for them. It was hypocrites. How would would you relate to somebody if their favorite word about you was hypocrite? You hypocrite. You hypocrite. Would you like that? Jesus saw right through that. And in Matthew chapter 23, when we get there in about five years, the seven woes, seven times, Jesus excoriates these Pharisees. Woe to you teachers of the law and you Pharisees. You guys are hypocrites. You shut the doors of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And you yourselves don't even enter because all you care about is looking good in front of other people. I want to see your heart transformed. I want to change your heart. I want to make you clean on the inside. And then you'll do what you're supposed to on the outside. The Pharisees possessed religiosity, not righteousness. That's what the Pharisees possessed. This should scare us a little bit, guys. Because... Most of us are pretty good about curbing our behavior in front of other people so that we look good. We've all been there. We've all done that. God doesn't see through that. God does see through that. He's not fooled by that. So so God wants heart righteousness. He wants your motivation to be right. He wants your heart to be right. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about your actions. Because we can think, okay, 
I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. I'm robed in his righteousness. So really, like, if I do some bad things, it's okay, right? Because, because God's already forgiven me. So it's okay if I do the things that I want to do because God will understand in the end and he'll forgive me. That's a very dangerous way to live. Well, I was baptized when I was a kid. I can, I'm, I'm good. I'm still a little bit wet behind the ears. I've still got some grace dripping from me. So if I sin, it's okay. God understands. Friends, God does, does understand, but a tree is known by its fruit. If a, if a tree is good on the inside, then the fruit's going to be good on the outside. And so in the New Testament, we see areas where Paul writes, he says, look, here are your actions. If your actions are like this, you will not enter into the kingdom. Two places here, quickly, 1 Corinthians 6, very familiar passage, we went there before when we studied the Corinthians. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? What do you mean by wrongdoer? Well, he expands on that. This kind of hurts here. Our culture would not want to hear this list right now. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, or idolaters, or adulterers, or men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So your actions matter. But praise God, you know what he says after this? But such were some of you. But such were some of you. You have been washed. You have been justified. You have been sanctified. You're not that way anymore. Another place in Galatians. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. He's, this is a catch-all, man. Just think of all the things you can do wrong. Dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have to appreciate the tension God wants heart righteousness. He wants you to be robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He wants you to cling to that as your salvation, and that's beautiful. But that has to work its way out in the way that you live because Jesus cares about you obeying God's commands as he will expand it in the law of love. So your righteous actions do matter. They come they must come from a heart of faith. And only God can give you the heart righteousness required to enter into the kingdom of God. Only God can give that to you. Two beautiful passages in the Bible that I love, that are so meaningful to me. One is a prophecy made in Ezekiel as God talks about his people in the end times. Because you guys have been so disobedient. You have wandered away from me. I've sent you into captivity, but I'm going to call you back. I'm going to call you back home. And I'm going to take out your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new heart. A heart that wants to obey. And I'm going to put my spirit to live within you so that you will obey my commands. See? That's how it works. New heart, God's spirit, we obey the commands of God. And in John chapter 3, Jesus talks about that very passage. Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, wanted to enter into the kingdom. So he comes to see Jesus in the middle of the night and says, Jesus, you must be a teacher sent from God because I've seen all the things that you do. And Jesus says, okay, Nicodemus, look, I know exactly what you want to know. 
how do you get into the kingdom, right? That's what you want to know. How can a person get into the kingdom? And Jesus says, you know, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom. You must be born again. You must be born of water and blood. And in saying that, he was referring back to the passage in Ezekiel. Being born of water is having water sprinkled, you being sprinkled clean by God. And then having the Spirit of God put in you, receiving that new heart that only God can give. Only God can give you the heart that's righteous, a heart that's required to enter the kingdom of God. Paul talks about this in Romans. He says, since they did not know, he's talking about his fellow Jews here, the Jews, the Hebrews, did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They thought, you know what, we can do enough good works to overcome our evil and enter into the kingdom. That's what they tried to do. They would not submit to the righteousness of God. He says that's foolish because Christ is the culmination of the law. He is the fulfillment of all that the prophets and the law had predicted. He is the fulfillment of all that. He is the fulfillment of the Levitical sacrificial system. He's fulfillment of, of, of all the prophecies that were made about the coming Messiah. He is the culmination of He is the fulfillment of that. And He will be your righteousness. The righteousness that you need to be in the presence of God if you come in faith, right? So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the culmination of the law. Some versions say He is the end of the law. The end to which it pointed. And so Jesus rightfully says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, as we close, I have a few points to ponder. I think I have four. First one is, and we'll talk about this next week. This is going to be the second part. What is our relationship to the law now that Jesus has fulfilled the law? I clearly said that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets in his life, in his finished work on the cross, his resurrection from that. He, he has fulfilled the law. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit, and then I'm going to use keeping the Sabbath as kind of a, an example that we're going to work through, right? Because that's kind of a big thing now with people. I'm keeping the Sabbath. That's my Sabbath day. Okay, I'm sorry. This is my Sabbath. It's kind of a popular thing right now. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But I think more importantly, and I want you to understand this, is that God cares about heart obedience. God sees your heart. He doesn't give a rip about your religiosity. He doesn't give a rip about your virtue signaling. It's a new phrase, virtue signaling. Performative morality, all the things that you do so that people see you, so that they think that you're righteous. But God wants your heart. He wants to make sure you have a heart that's transformed by him. Right? Matthew 15. That's the passage where Jesus says, they praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So ask yourself the question this morning. Do you have a heart that desires obedience? Next point to ponder. Hard obedience is not a heavy burden, but it's a pathway to beauty. I try to teach my, my kids and people I disciple this, that God's commands aren't meant to kill your joy. That's not why God's given us commands. God wants you to live life 
to its fullest. God wants you to live the life that he has intended you to live. God wants you to, to, to soak up all the joy that this life has to offer. He wants you to enjoy everything in his creation that he has to offer, but according to his terms. And as we obey his commands, right, then we relate to his creation as we should, and that's the pathway to beauty. And beauty, my friends, is being as much like God as possible. So when we talk about obedience, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, I don't want you to be weighed down by, oh, this command, that command. He says this. I want you to think about Jesus has put me on a pathway to beauty. He's put me on a pathway to joy in all, so that I can experience all that he wants me to have in this world at this time as well as the life to come. And obedience will get me to that point. Obedience is a pathway to beauty. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The last point to ponder is this. You can only achieve the heart obedience Jesus desires with the new heart that only Jesus can give. I am pleading with you. I am pleading with you. If you've never cried out to Jesus and asked him to transform your heart, cried out to Jesus, I am a sinner. I need to be saved. I need you to transform my heart. Jesus, if you've never cried out, please do that today. Because God promises to give you a new heart. And he will transform you with a righteous heart. Right? Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says... He says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God and is on the basis of faith. You just have to believe and cry out to Jesus, and he will give you the new heart. And that's my prayer for you this morning. So we're going to sing... um, Uh, The song we're going to sing is, uh, Lord, I Need You. We sing it often, Lord, I Need You. And we all need the Lord. We need Him for salvation. We need the Lord to live obediently as He's called us to live. So this morning as you sing this song, my prayer is the Holy Spirit will work in your heart as He sees fit. So if you would, stand and we'll sing, Lord, I Need You.